So yeah, so we're we're talking about the Holy Spirit in this new sermon series, and I think it's so good we are. It's fitting that we're talking about it now because after Jesus' resurrection, what we see is the Holy Spirit coming down on his people, right? And really, the book of Acts should be titled The Acts of the Holy Spirit um, instead of the Acts of the Apostles because it's, it's all about what the Holy Spirit does when it's having its way in men and women. So, another reason why I think it's good we're talking about the Holy Spirit is, I think, and I think, I don't know of anybody who would disagree, the Holy Spirit is definitely the most misunderstood uh, member of the Trinity. And so it's important that we talk about the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? What does He do? What impact does He make in a person's life, right? And so we're going to be turning to the book of Acts to, to look for answers. And today we're going to be in Acts 1, verses 1 through 11. And so I just want to read these verses to you. And then, of course, I'll, I'll talk about them. But uh, some amazing things here. So let me read it. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles, whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up. And a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. The Bible is... A book like any other book, right? It's, it's made up of 66 different books written by 40 authors on three different continents over a span of 2,000 years. Did you just hear what I said? It's pretty unique. Even the construction of the Bible is just a miracle. It's just miraculous. And there are a lot of different ways, and by, if I didn't mention, it tells one cohesive storyline, which is just amazing. And there are a variety of ways to talk about that one cohesive storyline that the Bible uh, talks about. Um, one way, and I think it's important that we look at this way this morning, is through the lens of the kingdom of God. Notice in verse 3 of our passage, that Jesus, after he was resurrected, and as he walked to earth for 40 days, what did he talk about? The kingdom of God. Which is no surprise, because 
the topic that Jesus talked about the most was the kingdom of God. Actually, everything Jesus talked about supported this topic. And so what a shock now that he has 40 more days with his followers that he's talking about the kingdom of God. Now, this means we cannot fully understand the Bible. We can't fully understand Jesus and his ministry. We can't fully understand the entire New Testament, the role of the church. And guess what? We cannot fully understand the Holy Spirit without understanding the kingdom of God. So let me talk to you about it, right? I'll do my best to make this as short and sweet as I can. Let's trace the kingdom of God through the storyline of the Bible. First, God establishes his kingdom. This is what the beginning of Genesis is all about. God creates his kingdom, which is the entire universe. Psalm 103.19 states that the Lord has established the throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. God is love, right? And so what he did is he created humans in his kingly image to bear and reflect his image into the world, to rule over his kingdom on his behalf so that his kingdom thrived and flourished, right? So that's God establishing his kingdom. Second phase, rebellion in the kingdom. Beginning of Genesis shows us the first humans and every human after the first humans has rebelled against God. Instead of living for the glory of the one true king, humans, you and me included, have decided to live for our own glory. Instead of making God's name great, we have decided to make our own name great. We want to be the ruler of our lives. We don't want anybody to tell us how to live and what to do. And so we rebel against the one true king. Third, third phase, the promise of a restored kingdom. As early on as Genesis 3.15, we already see God promising to make it all right again. He talks about the seed of the woman who will crush the supernatural forces that enticed the first humans and every human afterwards to rebel. And then in the prophets, God speaks through them in more vivid detail about this seed of the woman, this, this, this promised king that God will send to crush the rebellion in his kingdom and to make his kingdom right again. Uh, Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah in chapter 9 verses 6 and 7 says of this future king, the government will be upon his shoulder and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The next phase is the arrival of the king in the restored kingdom. And that happened with Jesus, right? Jesus' message was what? The kingdom of God is at hand. It is here. Repent and believe the good news. That was his message. The Jews of Jesus' day were baffled because Jesus, though, was a king, that they, a sort, the sort of king they didn't expect, nor was his kingdom the kind of kingdom that they were expecting. You know, how do, king, how do kingdoms come into existence? By force, right? 
They were expecting that Jesus would restore the kingdom of God, the universe, by force. That Jesus would be this military leader that would get Israel back to being a great nation and he would use Israel to then crush the rebellion, to crush the opposition. But Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't come as this conquering lion, but what does he come as instead? A suffering lamb. This baffled people. It baffles us today. How do people come into power? By wielding power. This is so unusual. And this is why Jesus knew, God knew, that if Jesus, if he sent Jesus and Jesus came as a roaring lion, crushing his opposition, if God's justice were to fall, it would have to what? Fall on all. Because we've all rebelled. Right? And so there would be no man left standing. And so he comes as a lamb. A sacrificial lamb. Jesus died and he paid the price for our rebellion. So that rebels like you and me could not just be made friends of his. So that we could be adopted into God's royal family and become a son or a daughter. This is remarkable. So that we could become royalty. It's amazing. Now, Jesus, he, he came to conquer, first he came to conquer the opposition, not through force, but through love that led people to willingly ch choose to submit themselves to him. What an amazing king. Alright, next phase. And actually, I'm going to skip a phase, but I'm going to come back to that skip phase. The final phase is the completion of the restored kingdom. Jesus promised that one day he would return as a roaring lion. And that he would get rid of all the opposition in God's kingdom. All the supernatural forces and all the humans that persist in rebelling, rebelling against God, he would eventually one day remove so that justice and peace and goodness and beauty would once, be, once again become the norm for the kingdom of God. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in regards to Jesus' return. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 24 through 26. Then comes the end, the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. In Acts 1.6, you have Jesus' followers asking him what? Is it now the time to restore the kingdom of Israel? You know what his followers are asking him? Jesus, is it now time for you to be that roaring lion? Is it now time for you to get rid of the opposition? And they thought that would all happen first as, as God restored the nation of Israel as a superpower. And that God would work through Israel to do it. And so they're asking, is it time? You came, you died for us, we're forgiven, we're now in your family. Will you make things right? That's what they're asking. Now, what did Jesus decide to do when they asked that question? Well, we read some verses later that he decided to leave. He left. He left 
physically he left earth, right? Now, and this leads to the phase that I skipped. Right now, obviously, it's not time for Jesus to become the roaring lion. Because he didn't do it, he left instead. So what time is it now? Now is the time for the spread of the restored kingdom of God. This is the phase that we are currently living in. Um, I was talking to Isaiah, my youngest son, eight. For some reason, in my mind, I think nine. I don't know why, eight years old. Um, just a couple days ago, he got into my bed after Mary had already, you know, put, put the boys to bed. So I wasn't sure if uh, he was just trying to get out of going to bed or what he was doing. But he came in, and if he was uh, trying to get out of going to sleep at that time, he, he did exactly what he should have. Um, he started asking questions about God. And, like, so we get in this kind of course, yeah, let's do this. You will stay up all night if you want to talk about Jesus, right? Actually, I really believe he had honest questions. He asked really, really good questions. As we were talking, one of the things that happened in him is he started, tears started coming out of his eyes, down his little cheeks, as we were cuddled in the covers, and he said, why doesn't God bring the new world now? He was so, he was so saddened when he thought about COVID. He was so saddened, you know, in past months when we talked about you know, some police officers mistreating, you know, people like this stuff. Obviously, I think sometimes we don't think this stuff affects our kids. Obviously, it, it had been affecting him and it came out. Why doesn't God bring the new world now? And my answer was to him. And it's the same answer you know, I give to you. Is the answer is that Jesus wants more and more people to have the opportunity to encounter him as the sacrificial lamb and not the roaring lion. He wants more and more people to become a part of his restored kingdom, to become a son and daughter in God's royal family. And that's why he has not yet returned as the roaring lion. Right? God wants all to repent and to be saved. Now, you would think if Jesus wants his kingdom to spread, and that's why he has not returned yet as the roaring lion. You would have, you know, I would think it would be better for him to physically be here. Right? If you want your kingdom to spread, why not be here, Jesus, in physical form? And the answer is because it's not best for the spread of the kingdom of God for Jesus to physically be here. How about that? Why not? Well, I think uh, one Bible scholar by the name of Leon Morris explains it well. This is what he writes. During his lifetime, check this out, the Son of God was confined in his influence to a comparatively small sector of Palestine. After his departure, his followers were able to work in widely scattered places and influence much larger numbers of men. But they did it all on the basis of Christ's return to the Father. They were in no sense acting independently of him. On the contrary, in doing their greater works, they were but his agents. You see, the kingdom of God is present wherever Jesus is present and his will is being done. This is critical. Now, Jesus filling his followers with the Holy Spirit was the way that he chose to be present all over the world 
It was the way he chose for his will to be done on the earth as it is in heaven. It was the way that he chose for his kingdom to spread. That's why Jesus left. And what happened is, as Jesus' followers were filled with the Holy Spirit, as Jesus' personal presence was in them, and as they spread out through persecution all over the world, God's kingdom has engulfed it. And now there are over 4 billion Christians in the world. In the first 300 years of Christianity's existence, it spread like wildfire through the Roman Empire. And it's spreading like wildfire in many other countries today. America... There's a problem here. This is what God is doing. The kingdom is spreading, and it has been spreading ever since that day when the Holy Spirit was poured out on His followers. Here's what I also want you to see. Not only is Jesus leaving physically better for the spread of the kingdom, it's actually better for you. Let me tell you why. There's two reasons why it's better for you that Jesus is no longer here physically. The first is, it's one thing to have Jesus teaching you from the outside, telling you how to live from the outside, but that didn't work too well for his disciples, did it? They all ended up, in the end, deserting him and abandoning him. That didn't go so well. It's a greater thing to have Jesus actually living inside of you, rewiring your brain and your heart so that you can actually understand his will and you have the power from within because Jesus is living in you by the Holy Spirit to actually live it out. It's better to have the Holy Spirit in you than Jesus physically next to you. Right? Case in point, look at how the disciples changed once the Holy Spirit was in them. Like, they became unstoppable. You see, Jesus left so that he would never have to leave nor forsake us. Jesus left so that we would always have him with us even to the end of the age. The Jesus in you is better than the Jesus next to you. Here's the last thing that I want to point out to you from Acts 1, and this is in verse 2. Notice how Luke points out that Jesus did everything that he did through, what? The Holy Spirit. And Luke, he repeatedly says this in his gospel that bears his name, that Jesus did what he did through the Holy Spirit. Now, I think J.D. Greer in his book, Jesus Continued, makes such a great observation as to why Luke includes this in verse 2. This is what he writes. It's so good. Why make this distinction? Like, why point this out? Here's why. If Jesus had healed exclusively out of his own power, then he'd have a significant advantage over his disciples. But if the Holy Spirit empowered Jesus, then the disciples could do what he did, continuing the ministry he started. Believers who now possess that same Holy Spirit have access to that same power. We can do what Jesus did. Because Jesus didn't just do the things he did by his own power. He did them through the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that dwells in us who believe. And what Acts is, is chronicling, if that's a word, is Jesus passing the baton from him to his followers. And he wants them to be abundantly clear on the fact that they can do 
what he did, spread the kingdom of God that he inaugurated and started with his arrival. They can do it because they're going to have the Holy Spirit. Notice how adamant Jesus was about them not doing anything until they received the Holy Spirit. Jesus was saying, like, don't do anything because you'll screw it up. You won't be able to do it. But if you wait for the Holy Spirit, you will be unstoppable. Not even the gates of hell. All the evil forces will be able to stop my people from spreading the rule and reign of the king. It's remarkable. I get so, I just got chills when I said that. I get fired up. Now, let me uh, just uh, recap. God establishes his kingdom, rebellion in the kingdom, the promise of a restored kingdom, the revival of the king in the restored kingdom, the spread of the restored kingdom, the completion of the restored kingdom. We live in that in-between time, between the arrival of the kingdom and the full coming of the kingdom. The kingdom is here, already here, but in a lot of ways it's not yet, right? We live between two worlds, 